0: Well, Gary, welcome to the full time hustler podcast. This podcast, what I like to do is kind of, you know, they say that one in 10 startups will make it. Uh, and so I like to get in and hear firsthand from the kind of demystify entrepreneurship, if you will, and hear firsthand from the entrepreneurs that are you know, working on the front lines like yourself. So with that being said, I'll turn it to you, Gary, and tell me who you are. You're the, the past, present, future, good, bad, and ugly.
1: Yeah, sure. And thanks for having me, Jason. Uh, so I'm Gary. Uh, you know, we're working on Goss, a tech startup, which I'm sure we can get more into in a bit. Um, I'm a Marine veteran, started my first business, actually incorporated my first business, uh, in the mid nineties at the age of 12, ran 20 years profitably. Um, after the Marine Corps started another, a number of other businesses. Uh, I've worked in the event and entertainment industry over the last decade. Um, what are some more interesting things that I haven't talked too much about publicly yet? I ran a koi farm at 15 and 16. <laughs> really? <laughs> the age of 15 and 16, yep. It's a uh, interesting thing. At the age of 17, I ran a junkyard in upstate New York. Um, done all sorts of stuff through my life. Uh You know, it's... I don't know. I don't believe there's a straight path for everyone, and that has certainly not been my life.
0: <laughs> well, some of the ups and downs, I'm sure there's some within Koi Farm. Lord, I felt like there was a whole podcast in that. <laughs> That's got has you got know, the ups and downs, but I'm sure in your journey, you know, you you've started well, an nature before. You know, the ups and downs has got you to where you're at right now.
1: So it's interesting. I think uh, the grass is always greener, right? That adage is true no matter what you're in. You know, I've been a helicopter mechanic. I've uh, been an industrial mechanic. I've, uh, done all sorts of construction, everything you can think of with construction, everything it takes to build up or tear down a house. Um, so everything has ups and downs, right? It's all a matter of perspective, I think, and how you deal with those ups and downs day to day. Um, certainly much of my life has been I've been through plenty of challenges, trials and tribulations, if you will. But uh, it just is what it is. I think everyone has them, and they're all different. Uh, If you go order a sub from Subway or, you know, you're in a checkout line at Target, the person that you're interacting with likely has their own ups and downs, and I don't think they're vastly different from most other people's. Um, The human experience is really interesting in that our hardships – we feel like they're incredibly unique, and in some ways they are, uh, but we all have them, right?
0: Precisely. Um, you say you was a marine, and as a marine, I ask you just as a little plug: What did you do?
1: Yeah, I was a sixty-one thirteen helicopter mechanic for CH fifty-three deltas, the station.
0: Overworked out. and underpaid.
1: Yeah, that's the entirety of the Marine Corps.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I know in the uh, my friends in the air wing that you, the green weenie definitely gets you, and you work about 32-hour days.
1: Oh, yeah. Actually, uh I was the only one. So after I left flight line, because I went in as a helicopter mechanic, and I went into maintenance material control to be an expediter and worked in there for most of the rest of the time in the Corps, uh, but I was the only one doing my job for a long time. So I worked day crew and night crew, high five myself. Yes. While everyone else was coming and going.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So let me ask you, how did you go from the Marine Corps to entrepreneurship?
1: Well, I, I think it's the other way around. I think I went from entrepreneurship to the Marine Corps. Again, I, you know, I started, uh, the landscaping company, uh, in the mid nineties. I, before that, even as a child, I just went over this in an interview for a magazine that um, really thinking back, like perhaps one of my earliest, my lemonade stand story, right, uh, examples of entre- entrepreneurship were uh, these Easter egg hunts I did in like first, second and third grade where I charged all the neighborhood kids to come do an Easter egg hunt in my house that I did, I put on, and I would hide change in Eggs and under shells and all sorts of stuff like that. And I made a I made a killing for a kid at it. And then when Jurassic Park came out, I started a dinosaur kids club, just a group of neighborhood kids where I pulled everyone's money so we could buy more cool shit, <laughs> you know, as a group. Because I wasn't, you know, I didn't grow up uh, with means or anything like that. So how do you stretch your uh, lunch money? you know, pull it with a bunch of other kids and buy some Michael, Michael Creighton books and stickers and dinosaur toys. Um, so, you know, that's like an early membership thing that I did, I guess. Um, so then I went to the Marine Corps because, you know, I couldn't afford college. I applied to two colleges, got accepted, uh, found out how wildly expensive that was. Um, and needed to do something with my life after high school because I turned 17 my senior year. Um, so after high school, I went and traveled a bit up to family up in New England. Um, my mother was living in upstate New York when I went and stayed with her. I think that was seven months. So I was in upstate New York. You know, I delivered newspapers up there, um, ran a junkyard, um, did a handful of things at that point, went back to Florida. It was like, I need to figure something out with my life and some recruiters called. And so I went and talked to all the recruiters. They all offered me bonuses except for the Marine Corps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I chose Marine Corps, you know, cause it was the greatest challenge. We have the greatest uniform. Um, that's why, you know, the money from the other branches was appealing, uh, some of those bonuses, but the challenge. You know, I think is what really attracted me to the Marine Corps. It's also what kept me in the event and entertainment industry, uh, because you know many events are the same, but your challenges are always different. You're like as a director of a music festival or uh, operations director, any of the positions at that level and up to that level, you're very much a firefighter. You know, you're looking to see smoke in the distance. If a fire pops up, you put it out. Hopefully, though. You you foresee them before it ever becomes smoke in the distance. It's just different challenges. That's that's the answer to your question. That's what I've that's what's attracted me to entrepreneurship is the challenges. What attracted me to the Marine Corps.
0: Oh, that, love it. So I guess the heart of this we'll get right into it. So tell me what you're working on now. And the way I usually like to hear pitches or frame them is is kind of this outline. You know, it's a problem. You know, what is the problem statement? The solution: I mean, what is it that you know that you're how are you solving that problem, the model that you're bringing you know to 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 it that how are you the business model behind solving that problem, um go-to-market strategy you know and you don't have to give too many details since this will be public uh, like what are the plans to like reach the audience that have that problem, um any financial data that you have like if you've had success or you know what are you planning, and then the management team. So again, the question, overarching question, that's kind of the outline, but it's like, you know, what are you working on now? Uh and 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 viewers, anybody listening, this is where I would really start listening.
1: Yeah. So, we're working on Goss as I said, it's a curated layer 1 blockchain. Uh what that means is it's a permissioned ecosystem where we vet every project and brand that launches with us. Um I believe a huge problem in this space, much like early e-commerce, the early Internet, is there's a ton of, you know, fraud, scams, uh, brand infringement. It's just not a safe space for a lot of traditional business to begin moving into. And then I think they see that. They know that. Uh, and there's a lot of pilots going on. But much of what the public sees is, you know, and says about the crypto space is justified, I believe. You know, there's billions upon billions lost to scams because there's a high technical understanding needed uh, to really get into it. And even just for your end user who wants to swap two digital assets, it's a multi-step process. It's very convoluted. So that's another big goal of ours is to demystify the space and to a large degree, stop saying NFTs and Web3 and, you know, all these buzzwords that are people are using for, you know, news articles or fundraising because the end consumer doesn't care. They don't care that it's, you know, Web3. You know, the brand doesn't care. If Target moved their reward and loyalties program to our ecosystem, um, their end users don't care. They just want it to work in the app. You know, just like most end users don't care that we just move from IPv4 to IPv6 with the Internet. Most end users have no idea what TCP IP is. Um, they just use the Internet. They just want it to work. So that's initially what we are solving for. And what we're building to significantly down the road 5, 10, and 20 years from now is uh, where I believe we'll be. You know, the metaverse is a buzz topic these days. But I think that's an inevitability in the form of media. You know, games have overtaken every other form of uh, entertainment marketing that we ha- or entertainment sectors that we have. Um, sports, Hollywood, music, all of those things. And I think, you know, in 10 years and realistically, we're five, 10 years away from the actual metaverse. You know, we're seeing the Pong era of that right now. Um, five, 10 years from now, I think we'll start seeing the start of real, uh, networked virtual environments that have immersive experiences and interoperable assets and things like that. So that's part of what we're building toward. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's what we're building. That's the foundation of it, right? Right. Because it's such a huge topic, uh, our foundation is as a platform and technological layer to be built upon, you know, um, our go-to-market strategy. You asked that one. Um, as I said, I've been in the event and entertainment industry for just over a decade before pandemic, because that shut everything down. Um, and so we're leaning into our existing warm leads uh, for me and some of the other core team members. That's, the music movie industry, um, those are also brands that are significantly easier to uh, ink deals with and bring on board. You have an agent and a management team and the brand themselves, not numerous teams that have to buy into the decision, um, you know, with uh, with Pepsi or Target or Nike or Starbucks. Those are significantly lengthier processes. Um so that's part of our go-to-market strategy without getting too deep into the specifics because, you know, this is a tech startup, a business. Um, as we were talking about previously, this is, you know, wanting to do business right, which I think this space is also sorely lacking, right? Um, a lot of our team, uh, both from the co-founders and everyone else we brought on board, has a significant amount of transferable skills which is also important in this space because I don't believe there are many crypto experts. It's a new technology. Still that would be like saying you were a you know, an internet expert in the seventies, you know, sure. You worked with ARPANET and you were one of the early builders of it. And then everyone else that comes into this nascent technology, you know, you're not experts, you're new in this fledgling thing. Um, I mined Bitcoin back in 09 and gave it away because I thought it was worthless and at the time it was worthless. Um, I wouldn't say that I've been in the blockchain space for 13 years. You know, I had a Coinbase wallet back in 2014. I worked with a charity uh, in 2011 and 12 and 13 and 14, I think. I think it was four years with them on and off. Uh, they received most of their donations from Bitcoin that saw a value increase. Um, again, I wouldn't say I've been in, the blockchain industry that long I haven't been building in it so that's a long meandering path
0: oh it's, it's perfect so it's a it's a, in a, a platform that now and, and I guess my, my question will be is the tell me I use the use cases for this e-commerce or not excuse me this platform um that will and i'm going to try to be layman here and correct me where i'm wrong it will bring a lot of clarity to this otherwise uh convoluted space
1: yeah so the use cases are legion whatever anyone can dream up right we're going to offer up a number of menu options as it were two brands to help onboard them into the space um you know, that can look like reward and loyalty programs, uh, building circular economies with their own branded tokens, meaning that they take a Pepsi coin, uh, distribute it as a reward to their holders who then use it for whatever Pepsi merch or Pepsi discounts or what have you. So they're bringing that token back in and then they can then redistribute it. Um, and if their users, they receive those rewards, wanna sell it instead, More's the better in my opinion, for that brand. It means you slightly missed your target when issuing those rewards, so in them selling it, the end result would be the buyer on the other side being somebody you would have wanted to target right um, the The use cases you know it it is a difficult topic insofar as like when electricity was invented, nobody had conceived of electric cars or electric guitars. You know, phenomenal use cases for electricity, way out in left field, and never would have been dreamt up when that technology was being developed. Um, I do think though, for brands specifically, there's going to be a myriad of potential use cases that we can explore with them. Uh, for artists and whatnot, You know, they can do the NFTs and royalty system. Those are really intriguing. Uh, that's only, I think we're only just now starting to really explore what that looks like because you can programmatically handle, you know, uh, revenue splits and things like that. So you can hand out a chunk to songwriters and uh, everyone else in that chain. So I think that's an intriguing aspect for, you know, labels themselves and management companies. Um, I think one of the bigger things to explore again in five and ten years, once we get to more immersive media, uh, will be engaging with their communities, because I think that's really where it's going. I think the marketing of today is going to look very different down the road. Right now you have spray and pray shotgun method marketing. Um, You know, you hope for very you hope for a large Maybe single digit percentage in your conversions, which then maybe have another single digit percentage, uh, you know, or click throughs and conversions. And I think that is just remarkably inefficient for a trillion dollar market. You know, global advertising is a huge industry that's so mistargeted and all that money ends up going back to these platforms, which is something we really want to disrupt as well. Um. You know, I'm really looking forward to capturing even just that, just a chunk of that market and distributing those funds to end users. That's what rewards programs look like. Right. So if we had 200 million or 200 billion, rather, uh, of that global advertising market go straight to end users, that's redistribution of wealth. That's decentralization of revenue. You know. So
0: this is a decentralized ecosystem for uh, rewards and recognition that uh, is really demystifying that space, the rewards and recognition for
1: brands. Well, it's actually – so the underlying technology is centralized, right? Like mm-hmm. in, in the traditional sense, because right now I think people's understanding of the terms, even just decentralization, is very amorphous. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Good point. You know, it's
1: not remarkably well-defined. How can you call a decentralized blockchain decentralized if you're selling nodes for 50 or 60 or $200,000? That's not decentralization. You know, you're still concentrating that control power and wealth in a small number of hands. Yes, we're centralized in that we curate the ecosystem. We want to keep bad actors out. We want to keep fraud out. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're – you know, our whole business model is transaction fees. That's going to be the largest chunk of our business model. Unlike Apple, Google, Steam, you know, you name it, uh, we don't want 30 percent, though, of what passes through our ecosystem, what's built on the ecosystem. At start, we're probably going to have about five-ish percent. And as volume increases, that number will continue to diminish. Uh, You know, in five or ten years, it will likely be – a very small percentage lower than two and a half percent ideally um potentially less than one percent um we'll have to see where things go for that but that's the idea right uh i don't want us goss to be the large middleman saying yep you're launching in our play store you know as it were uh we're taking 30%, or you're launching a game with us because gaming is a huge sector that we're looking to tackle, especially early on because they have long development cycles. Um, you know, we have a whole grant program that we're launching for that. But you know, we're not going to be Steam. We're not going to take that 30%. I think that's a take rate that will begin dying off because those brands just have too large. Uh, you know, their budgets are way too large. Uh, they can't evolve to be as nimble as we'll be building to be, you know, Facebook couldn't say we're only going to take 2% tomorrow, nor could Apple or any of the other fang companies. So.
0: How would a small brand, uh, what would the onboarding look like?
1: Yeah. So we have multiple different pipelines to launching with us, uh, for large brands, you know, it's uh, It looks more like a sales team, an account executive process. Uh, for small brands, though, we have an application process that we're developing right now uh, with a curation team that's very manual. Um, it is not at this juncture scalable. We need to make sure that, you know, what we're building works as a process before really scaling it. So they apply. Uh, we first go through an internal review process. Uh, if they make it through that step, that very first step of our team, three people on that curation team using our scoring rubric and saying, yes, yes, no. You know, maybe there's some remediation in there. Maybe there's something else we need to review. But if they make it through that, then they go on to the next step, which is third party KYB, which is know your business, not know your client or customer. Um, that's a third party review where they go through and check out their, you know, actual physical identification or digital copies, as it were, of their physical identification. Um, and everything else. What is their business structure? Are they incorporated? Um, doing actual recorded video interviews. There's a lot that goes into that step. Um, after that, they go through tokenomics review. If they've already developed tokenomics, we review this at that step to say, you know, yes, okay, you have a sustainable method that you want to launch with, or oh my God, this is hyperinflationary rebase project number four thousand two. That's not gonna work for us. You know, there's not utility there. You're just trying to create some hype crap Ponzi scheme that we don't want. After that, there's a legal review uh that actually goes and digs a bit further into their uh legal structuring and things like that. Um checking to make sure that if they already have brought on shareholders that they're, that they're capable of launching with us. Right. Um, after that step uh, we go through a final internal review and then we can announce that they're approved to being launched. So it's definitely a multi-step, very manual process at the beginning. Down the road, we're looking at potentially having, you know, in a couple of years, 10,000 projects. Uh, hundred projects a day applying. So it's gonna be bandwidth that we have to work on scaling up to, but.
0: That that onboarding, and correct me if I'm wrong, sounds uh, very identical or similar, uh, if not identical to uh, marketplaces.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, similar. Uh, It's also similar to what you see in some of the better um, accelerators and incubators. Absolutely, Which, You and know, blocks, is something else. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's another area we're looking at. And something else we get to do is a curated layer one blockchain, a curated ecosystem uh, is take that quality over quantity and then really set them up for success. Uh, you know, let's say most projects in this space are projects, not businesses uh, to start out. And that's not a terrible thing, but they do need to have a bit more structure into them. They need legal support and marketing support and organizational operational support. They need to be built out as businesses to really succeed. Um And that's stuff we're looking at helping them, you know, set up. And
0: that's what I, I'm spitballing here and, and shoot me down because I'm, I'm genuinely spitballing. Uh, it sounds like there is an opportunity, and as you say, with the incubator and accelerator onboarding um, process, you have that there is a opportunity for a marketplace for your for the clients that are that you take on board and pass this. There's some kind of value add that say, you know, there's a marketplace that another user could come and say, hey, given that they went through your onboarding, that is a stamp for something. Uh, and here, like, I, again, I don't know what the marketplace, I don't know what the pitch would be. Um, but it, it seems like a value to like congregate in a, in a, in a centralized marketplace of your clients.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and to that point, you know, for the end user, I think it's important. We haven't touched on this yet, but I think it's important for end users to maintain custody of their own assets a la FTX. Um, (laughs) um but you know let's say game a wants to launch with us and they want to have their own nft marketplace and their own uh you know token swap hell we could build out a layer two ecosystem for individual games that need that level of transactional bandwidth but if they wanted to have all of that they can and the users if they wanted to take their own assets from that in-game or in-app wallet into a larger ecosystem. They can do that. They can then swap it in our swap and do things like that. Um, and I do think you're, you know, you hit the nail on the head that there is a the value add as well to being a curated ecosystem or to launching with one. Uh, given the degree that we're going to be vetting these pros, uh, projects, it's much like, uh, you know, VC firms look to accelerators, uh, some of the larger, more notable ones, uh, without needing to do tons of due diligence for that reason. They're like, well, they went through this.
0: Y and, Combinator, for example. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I wasn't going to name any of them, but YC is definitely one. We actually got asked to, uh, apply to YC for winter 23, uh, back in August. And we believe that. It was not the right time for us because we were, you know, if you're pre-launch, YC is great. If you're in the idea phase, YC is great. I think they have a phenomenal team. I'm a big fan of uh, Michael Siebel, Gary Tan, a ton of people uh, that have been through and worked on YC. Um, but it's not right for us at this juncture. It was a really hard decision because going through YC is exactly that. It's that stamp of approval. You get a valuation multiplier during your equity round just for having that, being YC alum. Uh, you also get the massive network of founders and everything else. But uh, for us, we wanted to get, you know, our blockchain to launch, our swap and everything else we're building to launch, our ecosystem starting. Um, before we really focused on anything else, um, you know, we're currently raising funds. We bootstrapped up to this point. Um, we've had NFT sales, uh, which as a layer one is different. Um, but I think it's an interesting way of starting to build a community to prove out your concept. You know, our first two months we did 300,000 in sales without leaning on influencer marketing. Cause I'm not a huge fan of that, you know, of just paying people to show for you. That's not my, we're definitely taking all the harder paths here.
0: It sounds like it.
1: But I think it's the right path, right? I think being aggressively different will prove out in the end. You know, so if I want to Tell about your token sale. Uh, So, our native coin is called Gang and there's a longer story that I can tell you about in probably 6 or 12 months behind why it's Goss Gang. Goss, by the way, is uh, named after Carl Friedrich Gauss um, and <laughs> And we're all nerds on the team, so it was an interesting conversation when we were first coming up with the name and everything and talked about that. And I was like, no, we're going to pronounce it Goss uh, just because I've always mis- mispronounced it my whole life from sci-fi, punk, gaming, Goss Cannon, Gauss Rifle. Um, but it's actually Gauss uh, is how you would pronounce, you know, Gaussian distribution, things like that. Um, anyway, so our native coin is Gang. And we're distributing that uh, publicly via NFT, which are called Pharaoh cards. And They're kind of like membership passes, magnets for rewards, and keys to exclusive opportunities, because it gives us a way to showcase some of the use cases with, you know, tokenized assets, how you can market with them, how you can build communities, how you can reward them. Um, and they'll also have a gang allocation to them. Uh, there's four tiers of those. The first three are mostly public sale. The last one is targeting more the institutional buyer, uh, more akin to a traditional token sale. Those are 25 grand apiece. Um, with a limit of four, however, uh, there's only a hundred available. Uh, the limit to me, I don't want to sell a million dollars worth of our token out the gate to one buyer, uh, firm or whatnot. Because that's they could have an outsized impact on our ecosystem in two years, right? Um, I think it's more important to protect the ecosystem. And again, take the harder route. (laughs) You know, raise uh, smaller amounts for more people as we get started. Um, So that's, you know, functionally where the token sale, you know, the brief information. I could go into all the depths of each of those tiers, which are uh, iron, nickel, cobalt, and chromium, um, and ferro being ferromagnetic cards, this whole, you know, magnetism, Gauss or Gauss theme. Um,
0: well, I'll say that first off, as a computer science, uh, and, and, uh, all arching science fan, uh, I have the fundamental belief that mathematics is the fundamental is the language of sciences and to the and I go as far as to say that I mean this is really off off the rails here but uh, if there is a a uh, another intelligent life out in 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 this cosmos which this, given the size is probable um, though we haven't found it uh, I believe the language that it will speak to us in is mathematics. Um, so to Carl Friedrich, I will say that I uh, commend your nerdiness and also <laughs> as someone with my accent that is not known for, uh, enunciation. Uh, I'll say that Gauss Goss, I like the double play on it in the way that you've called it what the way you say it. Um, yeah. So, you know, hats off to the using a mathematician and two, uh, I like, I like enunciation that my accent and those like me which i will summarize as those who speak in cursive yeah that's how i would people say you know when people comment on my accent i say i speak in cursive because you know it's like i'll give you an example uh we we condense things you know it's just like cursive so that you don't have to pick up the pencil or you're writing utensil it's like you know mayonnaise is i say is a redneck word uh and they're like what you know Man a lot of people in here, which is man, there's a lot of people. <laughs> or one of my favorite growing up was Jeet Yet, which means did you
1: mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah, it's a, but we condense it down to Jeet. So I like the Goss Gauss. Um which I don't know how I would say that when I first looked at it. Now that I've heard you say it and I've heard others reference it before, but I think the G A would get me in my accent. I'd be I'd fall for that G A trap. Um yep. I would, I would really enunciate the guy, you know, not, you know, I wouldn't overlook it. Well, it's um, funny.
1: We just had, uh, the animated video that's on our YouTube channel that we had, which is just like a three minute ex, you know, not explaining everything, just touching on some of the points about brands and advertising and that stuff. Anyway, the first voiceover actor that we had do that, um, I wanted British, um, he kept saying Gus. Mm. Oh, it was, it was, and so impactfully the power of Gus. (laughs) Well,
0: that's the thing about my neighbor is uh, British, and in fact, I don't think him and I have sat during COVID and we sit at the fence and solved the world's problems. He's a psychologist by background, Um, though I will pull out and say I don't think when him and I have talked to each other, either one of us know what the other one is saying because you should hear an uh an english person not just british but english uh you know from england and he re- he reminds me of my american naivety and that uh or naiveness in that i say great britain i'm like you're british he's like saying you're british calling me british is like calling you north american i'm like oh i get it he's like yeah I'm from yeah england. Is. I'm, like, I'm english and what i will point out about him and those with his accent, is they enunciate it perfectly. They enunciate everything that should be enunciated. And I mean, they, I guess you could, it sounds kind of moody or rhetorical at this point, but it's English, and they are kind of the authors. Um, so it's like, who am I to argue? However, I don't try to argue. I'll just say that that's how I say it. You know, It's my accent. I'm not trying to, uh, just if you understood me good.
1: Well, it's funny. The southern accent, I just Googled this. I Google everything all the time, always. But uh, I wanted to make sure it wasn't fully apocryphal. It might still be. I'm not deep diving into this, but uh, I remembered hearing that the southern accent is actually closer to the original British accent. And there's. I almost that, there.
0: too, because think about where they first where we, where we first colonized. See, well, I mean, them. It was like, it was, it was British and English. It was, it was, it, where would, where would it come from? I mean, it was us.
1: Right. Well, I mean, things evolve over time. Like, and you have tons of other accents, like, you know, French Creole or well, I,
0: was, I, was, I was about to bring up, if you ever watch swamp people or think like, that's a different in that bayou area down there on the swamps. I'm from the Appalachian foothills. Right. Uh, you know, NASCAR, left turning, moonshine, bootlegging and you know, all that good stuff. <laughs> Which, by the way, the reason we only turn left is because if you have enough moonshine bootlegging uh you can only turn one direction uh side story on that my grandfather uh when I was doing driver's ed in high school uh he took me and you know, I was driving him around and he he was he's a boot- he was a bootlegger he's he's recently passed but uh he he you know again moonshine in my family you always reach one arm and 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 touch it uh a gallon jar with you know clear looks like water but it's not I'm, Unfortunately, I don't drink. So it's like, even though I have the best, like you could say, the best unaged corn whiskey right around me. Nonetheless, we were in driver's ed and I was driving him around and he took me to this house. I mean, we're pulling up. It looked like this house had its own zip code. It was a, it was a beautiful estate. Um, and out came Junior Johnson and Junior Johnson is one of the founders of NASCAR, one of the originals of NASCAR. And you know, he, him and my grandfather got to shooting the shit and like, you know, talking like old buddies. But it it really reminds me that you know that uh, and I wasn't a NASCAR fan growing up. I am now now that I've gotten away from my roots. It's like wait, I can you know and and re- remember who I am so to speak. Um, you know again, NASCAR is more important now that I'm older than it was when I was younger. But it was just that you know they say that it was founded on the boot you know the bootleggers and moonshiners. And then you know I've got that memory of my grandfather who is one uh, pulling up meeting Junior Johnson and they were again talking like you know he's introducing me to Junior. And, um, in fact, to this day, I still keep Junior Johnson's moon. He has a moonshine brand. Of course, he's passed too, but, uh, uh, I keep his, uh, I keep in stock for gifts and for others, his, his brand of moonshine. Uh, uh, I, I keep every flavor, you know, from apple pie to, uh, regular to, you know, all the, all the, all the ones they sell. I think it's called Midnight Moon is the brand. Anybody wants to go to the ABC store? Um, anyway, but, uh, ira accent in the foothills well it's mine and then you go to the the swamp that area uh you know down there in the bayou they sound like when you listen to troy landry from swamp people it's a completely different his sounds like mine but with a dip in and you know, i can't that's all i can say that's it, it, a terrible description however it's what i hear when i hear louisiana and mississippi people talk so like, yes it's southern but you have a lot more French in in yours, and you just sounds—you can hear the French in it because it there sounds like double cursive.
1: Yeah, yeah. Or you just can't understand it all, like the real, the real deep swamp people that it like who it gets thick. Um That
0: is, that is true. That is very language true.
1: and dialects have always interested me. I mean, I say that, and there's four hundred thousand other topics that have also interested me, because um, I'm that guy.
0: Likewise, so let me ask you one back to the back to your, your your venture here with with Gauss, Gauss, and however else anyone else wants to pronounce it, um, your ecosystem named after probably one of the greatest mathematicians ever. I'll cite it that way uh, for anyone listening to to to, to clear that up. Um, what ex- this is a generic question, but I want I want to hear the taking from Hollywood and drama and acting, I want to hear the emotion in this question. And that's really what I'm digging for. Um, It kind of kills it now that I've prefaced it that way, but um, (laughs) also kind of gives you the lead. But what excites you the most about what you're working on? And like, what potential do you see?
1: So it's interesting. It's a really interesting question. I actually haven't been asked this one. uh, I don't think, Um, you know, when I was younger, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. You know, I think every kid wanted to be a fighter pilot or a firefighter or whatever. Every kid of the elder millennial era. Not millennial, I'm know. one myself. Yeah. You know, many of us, that was our thing. And then I grew up as a nerd, uh, you know, a nerd doing lots of manual labor. But I play role-playing games and read tons of sci-fi stuff. We were just talking last night, me and one of our... Uh, other team members about Philip K. Dick and Asimov came up today. You know, um, you have Snow Crash, which is where the term uh metaverse actually originated. But it's it's always been such an area of interest for me, you know, to imagine where the world is in 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 and 50. What does the world of tomorrow look like? Right. And some people have gotten kind of close when they've guessed about it in the past and others have been wildly inaccurately wrong. Like Star Trek. Look at Star Trek. Phenomenal, phenomenal entertainment content right there. But which I'm a big Star Trek fan. So <laughs> but the original Star Trek and TNG Next Generation, you know, that's part of why we have cell phones today. A Star Trek nerd grew up uh and wanted to see this exist and never thought it would actually make it the uh founder the or not founder the uh inventor of you know the flip phone the original cell phone and all that they never thought it was going to work that people would just want this in their pocket all the time and he spoke plenty about it he's like i'm building it because i think it's cool uh, i don't think anyone wants it and here we are it's part of our you know we're cyborgs with this thing it's an extension of us i use it to google things constantly it's expanded my access to information and daily knowledge constantly Mm -hmm. and this area of technology that we're building in you know the reason it's so exciting to me is for what it can be in the future right in that 10 20 year time frame the broad spectrum immersive media you know movies will still exist books will still exist games will still exist not everything will be in this new format but the things that are in this format i think will be phenomenal and so that's what excites me about it and why i'm excited to build toward that even at this early stage you know this early arpanet equivalent era before tcpip in this space um it's just looking at what that future could be. And as a, as a caveat to this, I think it's interesting because I have a friend, a good friend of mine who loves me to death. I love him to death, uh, fully support everything he does and vice versa. But if the world comes to pass the way I'd like to see it happen, you know, uh, he doesn't want to live in that world. And I think that's interesting as well about the, you know, human existence and our perspectives on things that what one person sees as utopian another person is going to see fully as dystopian what's beautiful to one is utterly horrific to another and i think that's interesting you know i don't think there's necessarily anything good or bad in it uh somebody will get the most blissful existence living you know the swiss family robinson cabin in the woods lifestyle and I can even see the appeal in that. And others want to see an ultra futuristic, you know, sci-fi, you know, we have a fully immersive metaverse. We have cybernet, the whole nine, like post singularity thing. Um, another might see that they want a post scarcity egalitarian utopia again, a la Star Trek, right? Um, that's what excites me about this building. What I see as being part of that future, like a, an actual foundational pillar of what that could be.
0: Wow. I, I first off, let me say that, um, it, it, that is the exact answer I was looking for. Um, and I, and when you say sci-fi and, you know, growing up and, and, and I know a lot of, i heard even boomers refer to the Jetsons in the analogy you gave to Star <laughs> Trek. It's like, they see things that were on there that were, you know, in its time prefaced as uh futuristic and yet they have came to pass and so many examples from that show i'm um, in star trek you know because this sci-fi community uh a lot of your engineers and your technologists are you know they grew up just like you and i both with a you know watching those and now they're the ones shaping it yep. um uh, and i'll give you a little personal i'm the same in regards to uh as you as your use case here in uh your ecosystem with cryptocurrency um and and blockchain technology, I am the hyper focused myself with AI and like crypto, I believe it's got a lot of buzzwords currently, and about ninety eight percent of it isn't what, what I am trying to do what I like to define is you know my nerdishness and where I go you know down a thousand rabbit holes. Um, and I'll just prep and I'll, I'll summarize that as, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily in, in current terms. You know, we have dumb AI. Um, you know, and I'll give an example. Like Siri is not exactly what I'm trying to describe when I say that my nerdish tendencies towards a artificial intelligence because right. Siri is not intelligent. Uh, Siri is a, uh, is a voice trend, an automatic voice that's been hooked up to a dictionary. But she does not know language. Or she, it does not know language. Siri does not have a language. And the reason I distinguish is in that is when you're studying AI, one of the things you get really into intelligence itself and defining it in, in a philosophical and literal sense, in a scientific sense. And one of the heaviest achievements or barriers is language. So, you know, that's what separates us from every other animal. It's like take dogs, for example. They, the average dog can possibly learn, or has the potential for twenty words at max. See, they just don't have the the, the intelligence for language, and that's why I say language is a distinct uh, attribute and of in, of intelligence. Now, I'm, I'm going to pull out and say that the definition I think of intelligence is kind of more. It, it implies an embedded intuition in that you know it's you can take information and kind of guide the future. It's like if you see a bull running at you, to know to step to the left or to the right, or to get out of the path of the oncoming bull, that is a sign of intelligence. But again, going further, a uh, language being that. Um, and I'll share one last thing that's really into the weeds. And just with you, because you, you sound like we've got a lot of overlap. We could have 15 more podcasts. <laughs> see AI taking us is what I would like to call the augmented age. Um, and, and and I, I want to break down. There have been four major historical eras defined by the way we work. We've had... and. Uh, and and pay attention to and I think the key can I,
1: can I, I guess agricultural industrial information And there's three. you're going toward uh artificial intelligence or you were starting to say augmented, but those right,
0: that's, we, and I, and I, 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 there's one more at the at that predates those three, but you name three of the four we've only had four ways again uh historic errors defined by the way we work the first one and really the astute observation here um is the time that each lasted. And I'll give each age of the four and I'll give the time that they lasted. So we had the hunter-gatherer age and that lasted okay. several Printer, million years. Yeah. And then we had the agricultural age, as you mentioned, which lasted several thousand years. And then we've had uh, industrial age, which lasted a couple centuries. And now as we are currently in, the information age, which has lasted a few decades. And now today brings me to my point, we are on the cusp of what I believe our next great era as a species. And I want to call that and say, welcome to the augmented age. And, and in this new era, your natural human capabilities are going to be augmented by computational systems that help you think, robotic systems that help you make and digital nervous systems that help you connect to a world far beyond your senses. One example I give is, and it has to do with the blockchain is. Uh, just take the augmented glasses with uh, AR and like uh, the Google glasses uh, or that type technology and incorporate it with the blockchain. Um, you could look, go into a grocery store and look at a banana, and you could instantly know what farmer that was from, what truck picked it up, what time they picked it up. And I'm talking about each banana now. How we don't have that kind of relationship with our products and, and services now. But that's the world we're going to, and that's what I mean when I say connected, digital nervous systems that connect. Um, in summary, it's like, I think we're going from a world that's going to move things from fabricated to farmed, constructed to grown, isolated to connected, extraction to aggregation and obedience to autonomy, autonomy. Um, and it's thanks to these augmented capabilities, our world's going to change dramatically, in my opinion. We're going to have a world with more variety. Uh, more connectedness, more dynamism dynamism, I can't even say the word, see my accent. It's uh, <laughs> more complexity, more adaptability, and of course, and not to be too cliche, but more beauty. Um so when I say AI I'm I'm describing in that way. So I really love that your um your enthusiasm and, and where it's rooted more importantly. And uh but before I before we get all philosophical there, I do want to you did say, you know, you're being a sci fi fan and I like to ask sci fi fans uh, what do you think the greatest in the last decade sci-fi film or novel? No, mm-hmm. let me just keep it in the film. Sci-fi film has been, and I'm going to cheat and give you the answer, give you my answer up front and say, I think it was ex machina.
1: Okay. I can see that. I think, can we expand beyond film and say screen shows yes. too? Yes. Okay. Then the expanse for both film or both, you know, show, film, uh, and book. Um, that
0: is, that's astute. Yes. The,
1: the pair of authors that are Ernest Klein are phenomenal. There's actually two authors that write under the one name and the expanse is such a good sci-fi series that, uh, it, it TNG, I think, will always hold a top spot just because it's hard to get rid of that nostalgic love for something. But it's up there uh, in close proximity, because I would I would venture to say that it's better than Next Generation, uh, except I can't kill my childhood darling that way.
0: <laughs> right, right, right.
1: Um, but it's phenomenal. Like so many of the things that they went through in writing that uh, and filming it that are are accurate scientifically speaking it's you know why interstellar is important as a sci-fi film um that's my love for it there's and it's funny there's still things that they throw out the window to take uh literary liberties with right like hiding in asteroid fields or combat in asteroid field like come on your ast- asteroids are like hundreds of thousands of kilometers apart correct <laughs> you're not dog fighting in an asteroid field um but beyond that, like so many things in it are phenomenally well done. It's so well written. The character development's amazing. Um exploration of technology. And the greatest sci-fi in my in my opinion is really an exploration of humanity. Um to the point I would say Neil Stevenson's The Scythe, that series mm-hmm. um, is up there just behind it for totally different reasons. You were talking about AI. I love the topic of AI and, uh, you know, things we're working on in that same vein. But, uh, the actual very pointed topic of AGI, artificial general intelligence, Makes has effect. always fascinated me. Um, what does the world look like post mortality? You know, when you have an AI running everything. What does humanity look
0: gets like? Really, the transhumanist field really has done a has got a lot of material to that to that lane.
1: Right, and I think all the great uh, sci-fi writers and explorers throughout history have all had that same thing. Again, going back to Asimov or Philip K. Dick or any, literally any of them, they explore uh, different aspects of humanity. You set up a an interesting game. That you tell a story in. What does it look like for those characters in this alternate environment? And that has always fascinated me. So. Oh,
0: you. Yeah, I'm, I'm literally. I'm. I'm. Uh. So. I want to say. I want. What's the phrase I'm looking for? Cerebrally or intellectually drooling.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's all building in a space is also really interesting to those same points. You know,
0: and AI and crypto, we're both in, we both face the same upheaval battle in that 95% of the awareness now in both spaces are not what we're speaking to specifically.
1: No, very although important. I will say, I think the public is largely behind in their understanding of where we are. The key even in now they're
0: very curious, which is that's all we need.
1: Sure. But I think the larger public doesn't know that most major ports are almost entirely automated or you know how many just how much of the world is already automated and how much more automated it will become which isn't again that's not smart ai but it's a lot of really intelligent or uh, capable algorithms
0: so where do you see the future going
1: so i think the future for us as a species in a society Can go one of a couple directions. I don't think it's exactly binary, but I think, you know, depending on what happens in the next 10, 20 ish years, uh, we'll either proceed into a new dark age, what I view as, you know, being dystopian, more dystopian uh, than a lot of other things, or a golden age, you know, more utopian. We could move toward a, you know, eventually a post scarcity society. and I think it's hard to talk about that topic. Earlier I was mentioning, you know, what's beautiful to one is horrific to another. Um, I think a, an amazing future would be post-scarcity, egalitarian, uh, you know, Star Trek-esque world. Um, it's, I think it depends heavily on what happens in the coming years for the climate, For the economy, for us, you know, societally, Um, whether we start coming together as a people on a planet or if we persist with uh, individual power struggles and things like that. Uh, Technologically speaking, though, I think automation's inevitable. I think we're already well on the path there. I think that's going to have a very interesting impact on, you know, both production chains and labor forces, right? Um, What happens, like Black Mirror explored this really interestingly with one of their episodes, but what happens to a world where you have very cheap production of near unlimited goods to consumers who can't buy them, right? What does that look like? Um, and I think we're realistically going there, you know, uh, the U S we have a labor force of 160 million people, uh, 60, 60 some odd percent of which are, I think it's like 64% of which are employed. Um, you know, that's that labor force participation rate LFPR, um, which is about a hundred million people, about a hundred million, one third of the U S population is quote unquote employed uh, or actively looking for work, uh, what happens when we lose 50 or 70 million jobs for this labor force? What happens when you only have one sixth of your population actually employed? That's not a sustainable system uh, you know. in the current world. Uh, there's not enough money going around for people to buy things. So I think a lot of those things are interesting problems we're gonna have to solve. And I think we have to look at our societal governmental economic models and how we adapt with the changes because i don't think automation is bad i don't think growing efficiency is bad i think not addressing those things in an intelligent manner however is bad i don't think governments societies and economies not evolving is bad so what does the future look like flip a coin I'm not certain yet. I, I hope for the best. I genuinely do. We're building for the best. Uh, you know, best case scenario, in my opinion, because I don't think you can actually plan for the worst. Nuclear apocalypse, if that if that happens, because that that's not off the table. Um, I don't think you can plan for those things. Not exactly.
0: That's a good. That's a, that's that's a good point. Um, what do you want to promote um, before we get to my, my uh, wrap up? Uh, is there anything you need or want from anyone listening?
1: We want to continue growing our community. Obviously, we need to continue fundraising, but before anyone ever buys anything from us or anyone else, uh, be sure that you know what you're buying. You know what I mean? Be comfortable and confident in that decision. Um, within our community, we very mindfully have built it to encourage people asking questions. Like, we love questions in our community. We love answering them. Our, you know, uh, we call them guardians, love answering questions. We, the core team, are constantly in there on our Discord answering questions. I go on YouTube videos and answer questions in the comments. Um, I love answering questions because I think information is very important. Um, so ask questions first, uh, if you're interested in joining the community, please do. If, uh, after that you're interested in supporting us, you believe in what we're building, you believe in our team, you know, then buy. so.
0: Yeah. So I think the message to the user and to anyone listening is, uh, stay curious and reach out to you with questions and not just in a sales um mode but uh anything that they have uh, you will anything that they're curious about if they maintain this curiosity especially this budding ecosystem and all the potential within blockchain and crypto specifically um use you as a resource see you as a resource
1: yeah Um, I actually have two hours a week scheduled for our NFT holders where we just hang out and voice chat. Sometimes we play games. We BS about all manner of things. We had a phenomenal, very long conversation about life, the universe and everything. Um, You know, talked about religion um, with people of diverse backgrounds. It was really interesting. I think that idea of uh, nurturing curiosity is one thing that we as a people in a society, especially in the United States or many other countries, not saying anyone does phenomenally well at it across their population. But we don't nurture curiosity enough, really.
0: I, I, think that, I, I can't agree with you enough.
1: Yeah, I think that is a it's just something like again going back to the human experience that is one of the most defining aspects in my opinion of the human experience is curiosity it needs to be nurtured more especially in children you know uh best the way thing to how teach- the
0: department of education and i and i could spend i could write a thesis on this uh <laughs> you know they teach you know the multiple choice which is essentially regurgitation of information that you know you could use google for um, and they tell you, we don't need to memorize. I don't need to know what two plus two is. I just need to know how to access a calculator um, because the calculator will be able to process faster. And those lying ass nineties teachers that told me I wouldn't have a calculator in the future. <laughs> you know, I'm like, that's a lie. It's like, I just need to know how to find the answer. I don't need to memorize. Um, but my point being is that, you know, they're not teaching curiosity at all. It, it's right. a, it's a A B C or D, which is a memorization or regurgitation.
1: Right, and and there's another thing that I think uh, the education system does very poorly uh, in that we don't teach collaboration, you know, I think that's an interesting other aspect because the real world, if you don't have, like, look at every coder in the world, how often are they in Substack, or somebody else's GitHub, or Googling something, you know what I mean, Uh, most everything in the world is a collaborative process you're brought up and brought through these systems where you're very much you know you have students around you and whatnot but it's individual effort almost everything is individual effort Um, curiosity and collaboration uh, are so important to the point that that's part you know part of how we're building our team Um, everybody on board the team right now they're all lifelong learners inquisitive adaptable you know they're collaborative um because that's so so important to me
0: tell me about your team
1: so uh there's four co-founders there's myself our cfo pat uh pat rooney um he graduated college the year i was born he's been a cfo for three decades more than three decades um for Large tech firms, uh, some multi billion dollar corporations, things like that, uh, cybersecurity and defense mostly. Um, Austin McCall is our CTO and sole developer who's got us to the point of launching our blockchain and swap and everything else. We are expanding the team. He's not just going to be, you know, a gremlin chained in our basement forever. Um, <laughs> But everything has been uh, made possible to a great deal with him. I would consider myself, by the way, a semi-technical co-founder. Been coding on and off uh, since the days of BASIC, um, all the way up to present, like I just picked up Golang earlier this year. But I'm not our coder. You know, he can code circles around me. I'm proficient enough to read it and Google things. (laughs) Right, right, right. Um, and then Lauren is our fourth co-founder, uh, Lauren Williams. Uh, she's a geologist and data scientist by trade. Uh, she's our chief science officer. She will be heading up our research and development area and our not-for-profit wing, um, which I think having a very mindful approach to planning that from inception is important to what we're building and the scale at which I want to build. Um, the rest of the team, we have uh, just over 20 people now. We're onboarding another one uh, in the next couple of weeks, and then a developer right behind that, uh, plus more advisors. But uh, let's see. We have Mac, our CMO, McEwen uh, Patterson. He is a phenomenal individual as well, uh, ultra curious. Uh, we built rapport over time working together in a prior marketing company that he was with uh and then i asked him if he wanted to come on board you know with us as a project basis um because he's just a really interesting person really intelligent um really curious again uh is something i good good. you and i both look forward to yep um and we got along really well we have solid value and vision alignment um in his background you know i saw that he He wrote in Hollywood. Um, He has a diverse background, a lot of it in the entertainment industry, music and film, um, which is, again, a sector we're focusing on. Uh, I I don't wanna go through every member of the team, but like at the upper levels, we also have John Moore, our VP of growth and operations, who's kind of a Swiss army knife for the team. Uh, He went to college for uh, neuroscience and chemistry. And then worked in med tech company, med tech research company. Um, Recently parted ways there and I brought him on board our team. Um, I'm really humbled with the team we're building. You know, we have a few masters, uh, some working on doctorates, you know, it's a really, really impressive team. If anyone's interested, we still have more updates. I don't even think John's on our team page yet. Um, But check out our team page or just hop in discord and talk to us.
0: <laughs> Will you share the links with me that I could put on this or share with this this post?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, you can find everything just about through gossgang.com G A U S S G A N G dot com. Um, but yeah, I'll definitely after this, uh, shoot over a number of different links.
0: Okay. Um, and I, I've got your website. I'll make sure to scrub it um so as a wrap up uh, if you were talking to your 18 year old self you were out to dinner saying you're sitting in with your own self what would you what would you talk about
1: i have a question before i answer and i know that's not generally the best way to go about game theory but is this like will younger me remember the whole thing
0: It matters. I'm going to do the same thing. It matters in what way, as far as memory, as far as or will they apply something? Will they apply it? Is that what you mean by remember? Like, are you asking? Yeah, yeah. Whatever you say, applied or not.
1: Uh, I can answer both. Say yes and no. Answer both. Okay. So, so if they do remember, um, it would be a shorter, I think, more difficult conversation. It would be incredibly vague. I would, you know, tell them that they have a very interesting life ahead of them. That there's gonna be a lot of beauty and a lot of tragedy. You're gonna meet some amazing people and you're gonna lose some amazing people. Mm. Um, it's an experience. Just don't ever give up. Um,
0: that's something the Marine Corps, I do remember from my drill instructor, was that don't ever, if you quit now, you always quit.
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, not to get too dark here, but like the pandemic, I think a lot of people have lost people. Um, A lot of people are very, very used to the idea of our own mortality, Um, but in a different
0: view on that, I think the West, when you study Eastern and Western uh, uh, philosophies and theologies and mythologies, I think the West is terrified of death to the point we don't talk about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a. a, I would agree with that. Uh, It's an interesting thing that we don't do with a lot of things. We don't talk overtly we know it's numbers. there
0: and yet we, we we uh make sure and overly so to ignore
1: it right Um uh, rather than talk about it and celebrate someone's passing or something like right. we're very right.
0: we don't even like that phrase like celebrating a life right we, it's that's still getting new you know it's kind of a new age way to look at a funeral we're still like doom and gloom um you know they think about it like doctors like they, they come in their job is keep you alive they can't tell you you're dying because that defeats their job and yet you could see it in their eyes that the patient knows they're dying they see the gloom around the family but no one talks they we're we're not allowed to like say it
1: yeah it's just interesting uh different views on things like we have very puritanical and christian or not uh, puritanical and conservative roots rather in this country in general and um i think that influences a great many things like our view on uh, the body and sexuality, and all manner of things. All our um,
0: taboos of the West.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, to the other side of that question, if they wouldn't remember the conversation, I would talk to my younger self about what I've done in my life, about uh, the great and wonderful and terrible things that I've done or that have happened throughout you know, our life, uh, and what their input is, uh, tell them what I'm working on and what I'm building and look for that excitement. You know, I'm not saying it would change the course of current me, but I think it would be an interesting conversation to see how far, how much I've changed and how much I've matured, you know, 18 and 25 year old me is young, very young.
0: <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, some,
0: arguably, and, and this is not. From where you stand now, immature.
1: Yeah, and that's—I was a precocious child and always have been inquisitive and in learning. But my worldviews have certainly evolved over time. Um, you know, it'd be interesting, and I think younger me would would approve. What's
0: on your podcast? What podcasts are you listening to, or what books are you reading?
1: Oh, so I actually—I for a while was going through um business audiobooks again um you know what matters john doer's book stuff like that um right now though i'm actually listening to i just finished the newest neil stevenson book in the scythe series it's a it's called the gleanings or just called gleanings it's a series of short stories set in that universe which was a really great way to put a bow on that you know that experience. Um, and then right now I'm listening to The Lost Metal by Brandon Sanderson, which is the latest book in the Mistborn trilogy. Um, I'm huge on fiction and I like business books. I'm just taking another little break from it. One of these days I will break like my goal of 150 books in a year. That is uh, forever. I got to 150 146 in 2017. Um I got sick in December and <laughs> that's so close. You know, it is so frustrating to set that as a goal at the beginning of the year and then December comes and you're sick for like an entire week. Cause I was oh, on the man. road, I was traveling for four months and I was just sick um, visiting family. I was just in bed basically for an entire week leading up to Christmas and didn't read anything. I just slept, it was terrible. Yeah. Uh, Terrible to miss the goal by that much. Like I almost wanted to say, "Okay, I'm going to read like four Dr. Seuss books and call it."
0: A <laughs> <laughs> little hack there.
1: Yep. Couldn't Last it, question:
0: though. What's on your playlist?
1: Um. So I actually uh, right now I listen to Synthwave Radio. Just whatever Pandora station I find, I look up Synthwave Radio and play. Uh, you know, it's modern versions of 80s synth music um, but it's all orchestral usually not too much uh, lyrical mm-hmm. it's just good background noise to work to um, that said uh, I love all forms of music and hilariously for as many artists as I've met in my life most things I couldn't tell you like if I hear a song 40 times I might not still know who it is
0: I'm the exact same way when it comes to music yeah like I'm, I'm I'm very uh genre agnostic mm-hmm. however I mean when you come to the background of bluegrass you can like everything else you know um I'm a little bit hesitant on jazz because j- I think great jazz is terrific and everything else is terrible because jazz I think to me is just uh, everybody just throws in improv and kind of do what you want you know that is jazz it's like that's how it started it's kind of just the, the mutt of music However, great jazz is terrific, and yet that's about one percent of what jazz is. Other than that, all, all genres I'm open to.
1: Yeah. Yep. To the point that, you know, classical uh, violin's one of my favorite instruments. Like I've listened to Hilary Hahn a great deal. Phenomenal. Young everything violin. sounds
0: good on classical instruments. What's that? I said everything sounds good on classical instruments. It's like you could play play strings people. in an orchestra and it would kill it.
1: Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, but I don't know. There's, have you ever heard Il Koenig?
0: Not right off hand.
1: I'll send you a link. It's one of my favorite pieces. It's a really tragic story. The background of it, why, you know, the story it's supposed to be telling in the piece. It's a very technically difficult, uh, piece to play. Um, I've, you know, I've picked up a number of instruments myself over the years, enough to pick them up. And say, yeah, I I could play, you know, Mary Had a Little Lamb on piano. I Mm -hmm. bought two violins and learned to play them. And then they've been in their cases ever since.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was a band geek growing up, first chair and trombone. And then my director, music director, band director saw that I had a talent. So he taught me that or or instilled in me that you're not a musician until you can play or at least understand every uh, instrument family. You know, so I learned... Percussion, uh, to get a set for rhythm. I'm going to learn um, saxophones. So I'd have an understanding of the woodwind. Um, piano is really my favorite because uh, you, you can learn everything from piano. If I yep. could go back, I would start there. because like you're learning both bass and treble clef right in, from the start.
1: Right. It's like learning basic arithmetic before you learn geometry or algebra.
0: Exactly. Piano um, would be the equivalent in the instrument world to, I yep. believe, arithmetic.
1: Yep. Have you ever seen a harpeggi? Again, oh, I'll look that instrument up. It's a fairly modern instrument, but it's a stringed MIDI player. Um, if you watch someone play, it, if you have piano background, you'll understand the keying of it. But the ability to add that sort of vibrato and tonality mm-hmm. into playing a piano, just imagine that, right? Like imagine a stringed piano um I, which i guess a harp is almost but uh it has a bit more than that and being a midi you know an electric instrument you can pass it through a great number of things and pull out a lot more so super interesting
0: oh man that sounds fascinating
1: yep yeah i've been well, gary, following we'll you to, since i first came out
0: well gary we're gonna have to uh, i think we could talk i think i might have to bring you on for some other topics if you don't mind <laughs> you do have such a depth and breadth, you know, to your cerebral uh, knowledge base. Yeah, but with that, all
1: the things, I, yeah, I love all the things. Actually, uh, if you look at my LinkedIn, because that's where we first connected. If you go to my LinkedIn page, you'll see uh, my education. It says Masters of Pantology uh, from the university or master's in pantology from the university of autodidacticism, uh, with the estimated completion date of 2142, uh, which some people love and some people hate. It used to be on my resume too. Oh, wow. um, but it's, you know, I think know, that's
0: a good thing because it's personalization it's like, it shows a little bit of your personality. The fact you say something that astute in what it is.
1: Yeah. It's a study of all human knowledge for anyone who's listening. It's a study of all human knowledge from the university of being self-taught with an estimated completion date 120 years from now, but I've been using this for a decade. (laughs) That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, It's really interesting how it divides people because I've gotten really positive and negative responses out of it. It's really interesting.
0: Interesting, off of a LinkedIn, if people take offense, like people get upset about that.
1: Oh yeah. We had, when we, our very first podcast, uh, you know, AMA type thing we did with Goss, um, you know, the community that we were doing it with, you know, of course, they're looking up all the co-founders and getting information and doing a Google. And I, I encourage them to do that. They saw and that one a tad them,
0: too far sarcastic. What's that? I said they saw that a tad too far sarcastic. No, they
1: thought I was lying about my education.
0: Oh no. I see that as, that, a, I see that as cerebral
1: comedy. Yeah, it's yeah, it's fully me being facetious. Um, yeah,
0: it's like that's that's hello. That's what sarcasm is, by the way. It's like it's like intelligent comedy. Whereas you got slapstick, which is like your you know your Will Ferrells of the world. It's like, but then you have sarcasm, which is like comedy went to school and got educated. It's, right. It's like yeah, intelligent but comedy.
1: But they were yeah, they were upset. I also had a, um, a college professor who was literally offended. Like, I don't think she was. I think she was very, very, very upset by it. Um, a whole number of, it's been interesting and I love it and I'll leave it forever. <laughs>
0: that's, that's well, you can't please everyone. So I would take it with a grain of salt. I am not try to. <laughs> it's, it, it, that's so, wow. To get, something so petty to get offended over is what someone else puts as educational in their LinkedIn and resume. It's like, even if you don't like it, I wouldn't be that bothered by it. Um, that's right but
1: some people are and that you know especially you know on a resume or my linkedin or whatever it probably means we don't need to have a conversation there you go we're not gonna have a fruitful relationship it's just i'm good with that being (laughs) being a very simple screening method if that were the only one but um yeah i'd be down to talk more it has been an excellent conversation i enjoyed this
0: well i appreciate you being on and i will stop the recording.